Welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm your host, Paula Crossfield, a Vedic astrologer and business coach helping you to live in your purpose. And that is what this podcast is all about. So let's jump right in to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Weave Your Bliss. I'm Paula, and I'm so grateful that you're here. I'm excited to be sharing this episode, this interview with Satya Moses. Before we jump in, I do want to let you know that doors are open for the next round of your magnetic blueprint, my signature program for spiritual entrepreneurs that supports you to create a strong foundation for your business. This is an accelerator program, and you can choose from two ways to join, either by getting access to all the course material and live Q&As with me over the two months, which starts in September, or you can upgrade to get one-on-one support directly with me. So this program helps you shift the stories, keeping you stuck at your current income. It helps you take practical action and plan for your success, no matter what stage you are at in business. I still use these tools myself. There are always new layers and it's a beautiful process. So book a call at the link in the show notes or send me a DM on Instagram and we can connect to see if you're a good fit for the program. There's a limited space. By booking a call, you also get to share a lot of details about your business that helps me see if you are a fit. The early bird price in September 1st. And again, we start in mid-September. I cannot wait to see and hear more about your business. So Satya Moses, my guest today, is an artist and illustrator from New England. His life and art combine respect and reverence for the non-human, a deep fascination with folklore and mythology, and love of God according to his understanding of Sanatana Dharma, aka Hinduism. This summer, he self-published his first book, Hare and the Hedgewoman, Stories from the Forest, a collection of interwoven original fairy tales replete with intricate illustrations influenced by his explorations of traditional European lore and ecology. This conversation was sweeping, and Satya shares generously about his process, about work of creation what has allowed him to stay the course through six years of producing a project that's really took a lot of effort. If you do want a copy of the book, you can look at the show notes. There's a link there to order. He sold out of his first round, which he mentions in in the episode, but there is a second round planned for fall. So you can get your copy and you'll see how detailed these beautiful images are. I hope you enjoy this conversation. There's so much here. I would love to hear how it affects you. If you're engaged and if you have thoughts and questions, please do share them. It's Paula at weaveyourbliss.com. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Satya. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Paula. Thank you for um, having me. I'm so excited to have you here to talk about your creative work and your brand new book, which we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. I'm sort of curious to start by just talking about how you first began making art And like, if it's something you knew right away that you wanted to pursue. I have always been creating art, you know, ever since I could hold a crayon. And actually, even before, before I could draw myself, I used to direct my mother to draw things for me. So I don't remember this, but she'll tell me, you know, I would say, oh, give it a lion's head and a snake tail and blah, blah, blah. And she would draw them out. I think, I think my folks still have those somewhere filed away. And then when I was... 
15, 16 years old during that time of intense transition that all of us go through. Uh, as so many teens are, I was wondering, you know, what am I actually doing here? And I had some experiences through uh, outdoor survival and nature school that I went to that really led me to, okay, creation, you're here to create. I'm going to do that, you know, no matter the circumstances. So ever since then, I've had that, that real confidence that that is what I'm here to do. And it takes many forms. Mm. Yeah. And I have the pleasure of knowing your family and your wonderful parents. And so I know they're like super encouraging. So yes, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about how that helped you on your path. In at a certain obvious level, just having parents who said, oh, yeah, if you want to be an artist or travel or you don't want to study for these years, but you want to go adventure and learn about the world and try to get by, you know, however you can, that's fine. Give it a shot. So just that level of openness and encouragement was really important. And they both knew how important that was because they had both led quite unconventional lives themselves. You know, my father being a, a Swami renunciate for 20 years and my mother also being in the international yoga and meditation organization and traveling and studying spirituality and, you know, making zero money until they had me and suddenly had to earn a living somehow. So they knew all about that. And I also think in a, at a more subtle level, the spiritual understanding that I was brought up with, that ultimately what I am is a consciousness which is not affected by a material circumstance, um, important as that may be in the moment. Knowing that deeply from a young age has allowed me to, I think, worry less about material circumstance and just know that I will be looked after by nature. As long as I just make a little push in the right direction, then arms of the goddess are there to hold me. So you say in your bio that you have a deep fascination with folklore and mythology. I think I've kind of known this about you. We have, both of us have an association with Dr. Robert Svoboda, and we've spent a lot of time in retreat and like in different countries all over the world, which is so cool. But can you tell me a little bit more about why you like it and how you relate to it? And even though we both share so much around India, we also have other interests and your new book is very much a divergence from that. So is there a particular traditions folklore that you prefer? I think that my interest extends to almost all, all folklore and folk traditions all over the world. You know, when I walk into a bookstore and I go toward like the anthropology section, the philosophy section, and I see books of folk tales or, you know, the, uh, the beliefs of X tribe from the Pacific Islands or something, I immediately gravitate in that direction. And I think that interest stems from a real fascination with academics ontology, that the way that people conceptualize their place in the world and the beings that surround them, whether those are physical or non-physical, and also the narratives that shape their understanding. I think having that intense exposure to India and uh, that the, the many ways of seeing and thinking and believing that come from that part of the world fed that fascination in the sense that I could see from a young age that even though I was growing up in rural New England, that there were vastly divergent ways of perceiving from the one that I was kind of surrounded with. And that probably sparked an interest in culture. And in my view, so much of culture comes from the stories people tell. So that to me, that seems like a root way of um, engaging with it. 
And the book is very European in a lot of its reference, even though that's incredibly broad. You know, that's as broad as saying Indian or something in terms of cultural difference. But European and, and especially Celtic, when I was writing the stories that are in there, I was in Wales and Ireland being in that landscape and and researching stories and feeling how the stories resonated with the landscape itself and the mountains and the rainy skies and the old gnarled mossy trees. The kind of confluence of those two really fed into the matter of the book. Mm, that's so interesting. I've been kind of listening to audiobooks by Don O'Donohue, and it kind of reminds me of some of the things in his work. So if you haven't checked that out, and then also like just to respond to what you're saying, like, it's funny, because we've had so many conversations, but maybe you don't even know that I studied anthropology, because I really wanted to see how I could possibly fit into another culture and see if I could understand from the inside out, like a different perspective to see how many fundamental foundational human things are within a culture that we all have, you know, certain aspirations or feelings, yes. even though it's expressed in a different way. Like I was very curious about that at a young age. So it's interesting. Yeah. I think maybe we had spoken about that at some point years ago, but I, it wasn't at front of brain when I was talking about that. Yeah, but it's super interesting because I feel like that connects to spirituality as well. There's like a, a universality to our experience, but also like a broader view of what it is to be human and caring for each other because we're all related in that way or something, yes. you know? Yes. And how are, how are similar ideas expressed in incredibly different ways mm. depending on language and landscape? and the, the other creatures that are surrounding a culture as it's kind of forming. And that's one thing we definitely share with Dr. Robert is our love of language and reading and like how people express things. Um, so let's talk about your book. So it's called The Hare and the Hedge Woman. Yes. Um, yeah, it's actually, it's called Hare and the Hedge Woman. Hare and the Hedge Hair is, I mean, the animal, yes, but also the name of a character. Okay. So can you tell us about it? Like, did the story unfold first or did the imagery, because it is... Would you say it's a graphic novel, would you call it? I would say there are sections which are graphic novel-esque. I think the closest thing it is to that I would compare it to is like an illuminated manuscript where there's text and then there's illustration imagery that surrounds the text and sometimes invades the text and takes over from it entirely. But I have had this idea for years that I wanted to create a book that looked, that was visually and kind of texturally similar to the books of fairy tales that we had on our shelf when I was a kid, which I love to look through. And I love to look at the intricate illustrations and sometimes to read the stories. Uh, so I wanted to make something that like looked like that, that had that feel, that had that kind of magic, but then was also doing something different, like taking that form and going somewhere with it where it's only possible to go now in this current moment. So I just had that germ of an idea for years, but I didn't know what kind of stories those would be or how it would take shape. And then in uh, 2018, I was in Ireland and I was walking across uh, the Burren, which is a landscape uh, mostly in County Clare. I'm not sure if it extends into some other counties or not, but uh, on near the west coast of Ireland. And it's kind of this vast, windswept very intense and character rich landscape. And I was walking across it. There was just kind of a, some rain brewing uh, like it usually is over there. 
And I had this uh, mind's eye image of an old naked woman with long gray and white hair coming crawling out from under one of the tangled hedgerows and dancing around under the rain. And I thought, oh, she's the uh, central character of this story, this hedge woman. So all of the, there's many stories in the book, but they all intersect and they all weave around her figure. And then as I actually started to write, I got more into researching, well, who is this person that I've got this glimpse of? And I found, um, so that, yeah, that involved a research into folk traditions around witchcraft and wise women and all of these things, which are still very relevant. We don't see them readily when we look back in history. Can you talk a little bit about the technique you used for the drawings? Because I mean, I know because you started working on some of the drawings while living at our house in Astoria, Oregon, and we had like a little unit that you rented from us and stayed with us for six months. And so we got some glimpse into this world that you were creating. And they took a long time. Like each one is like painstakingly created with little points, you know, so can you talk about like, what is that technique? How did that come to you? The technique was partially a result of a choice based on necessity or what I perceived to be necessity, which is that I knew I wanted to have tons of illustrations in this book. And printing in black and white is vastly cheaper than printing in color. So I knew I wanted them to be black and white. And then I was looking at the pictures in those fairy tale books. Like there's certain 19th century and early 20th century illustrators like Kay Nielsen and Henry Justice Ford and a bunch of others who have, yes, they have colored illustrations, but they also have many, many black and white pieces in these books. So I looked to those for inspiration. The combination of those and the uh, economics of wanting to print black and white led me to think, well, I'll just do pure black and white, you know, no grayscale. And so that meant that whenever I wanted texture or I wanted shadow, I had to convey that without any shading. So that led to using a bunch of techniques like cross hatching or stippling, you know, making tons of tiny, tiny, tiny little dots with a micron pen. Uh, to create shadows and shades and effects of light when I didn't have the option to use color or even a, a gray wash, which definitely meant they took a lot of time. And my right wrist and shoulder were displeased with me all that time hunched over making tiny, tiny little dots. But I think uh, they've turned out quite They're beautifully. Beautiful. And, yeah, uh, it's really beautiful. So, so it. it took you like six years to complete this, right? With the story and everything. So what advice would you have for people who are working on a project that takes a lot of time and effort to stay motivated, like and come to completion? Because I think so many of us struggle with completing things. I also in my early 20s, I perceive myself very much as someone who struggled com with completing things. And I had a fair degree of success in becoming quite intentional about recognizing when that's happening, like recognizing when inspiration is starting to dwindle and it's like some perspiration is necessary and being like, okay, this is the time when now you actually have to focus on this. That being said, with this particular project, it felt very like the process felt very steady throughout. I didn't feel this kind of initial burst of inspiration and that faded. It was like slow burn all the way. And I think that that is enabled by complementary practices in life, you know, like meditation, yoga, these sorts of things that also help to focus the mind. I was talking yesterday to one of like my 
other big life mentors, this man, Mark, who lives here in Vermont. He's sort of a teacher in the realm of uh, nature skills and outdoor survival, but also culture and cultural rejuvenation. And we were talking about what he called the deep well, which I think is that thing that I found when I was 15 or 16, where it's like, oh, you, your purpose is to create, and you're going to do that no matter what. That is that deep well that I feel I'm drawing on working on a, a project like this long term. There's a difficulty comes when either people don't think they have that, or they don't feel they have that, or it's been covered over and like there has to be some dousing to find it. I honestly don't know, you know, what's the best way for people to unearth that. Uh, I just know that for me, it always feels like that this art or these types of projects, you know, this hair in the hedge woman in particular, but it's all artistic creative projects, that this is something that I have to do and would be doing no matter what. And I'm just incredibly fortunate that I've been able to be a working artist for the past nine years and bring a project like this to completion. And, but that all feels like that feels like cherries on top of the cake. And the actual cake is just that I do this and have that that deep well. So I don't know how, how someone who thinks that that well is covered can go about unearthing it. I mean, you said it kind of. It's, I was going to ask you about how spirituality plays into your creative process, because this is a conversation, like an ongoing conversation on this podcast. I talked to a lot of creators. I talked to a lot of spiritual people. And sometimes, you know, that overlaps. So like you were mentioning meditation and doing things like for me, I do mantra recitation and I think you do too. That helps me stay focused. It grounds me like even in a moment where things are hard to help kind of that punctuation of energy towards a project and then it dying off that comes from reactivity or like projection about what the project is or something like that. And not understanding that there's going to need to be some perspiration. Like you said, there's going to need to be some endurance actually to finish the project. So yeah, I think I think you did share that. Like if somebody's got that well covered, maybe it's to start a meditation practice or to try to do some allied thing. Like another thing, you know, that I'll share, maybe I've mentioned on the podcast before is like, I used to have no time for fantasy novels and like things that take me off. Like as a child, I was very into those. But then I was, you know, as an adult, it was like personal development and spiritual texts and like all these things. And I have been tapping back into that and reading those books that kind of just light your imagination on fire because they take you somewhere and they like put you into a different state, you know, and I think that state, there's something about that state and that well you're talking about. I don't know. Yeah, I think definitely that, you know, I also have a fluctuating relationship with like with made up made up stories. I'm always interested in folklore and mythology. But I think part of that interest comes from the fact that they don't feel made up. You know, you can't point to, oh, X individual invented this story. It's, you know, in the same way that like a geological formation occurs over millennia of different influences, like this story has emerged over millennia of different people. And yeah, I think like you, I have this kind of with with fantasy literature. I love creating it. And as a child and a teen, I was very into it. And I still enjoy it sometimes. But sometimes when I can sense, when I can really feel an author, you know, making things up like, okay, I've got this, you're in my plot and event X leads to event Y, I sometimes feel a resistance to that. So then I'll gravitate towards history or via mm. books about spirituality or things that... And folklore is myth. I mean, we're both so familiar with epic myths of 
India, you know, they are there for a reason. They're there to help people better understand themselves and their place within the cosmos and to teach them something. And like, as Dr. Robert says, like in the greatness of Saturn, like a myth is, is medicine. It's actually doing something at such a subtle level that we don't understand it. And so I trust that like when I encounter folklore that people from a different time who weren't distracted by their phones and all these other things were, you know, telling these stories around the fire. And so like, were you trying to evoke that a little bit in this book? It kind of feels like there's the mystical and the forest and like all those kinds of qualities. Yeah. I mean, the whole, the whole thing is framed by a group of people telling stories around a fire. Um, And then the stories contain more stories within them. To me, that's, uh, that feels like really the primal state of humanity. And I know we've had plenty of opportunities to sit with fire together. And when you're around a fire at night without distractions, with just you and a few other human beings, there is something about that state which is powerfully primordial and powerfully generative. For me, so many seeds of inspiration have been planted in those moments, whether that's around a a sort of a ceremonial fire or just a fire with friends out in someone's backyard that experience like taps into something incredibly deep. I am thrilled to share with you an opportunity to get a hold of my handpicked lay low dates for 2022, as well as success dates to help you with launches, with signing contracts, with making big decisions in your business. If you would like that, it's called the 2022 Astrology Guidebook and it's at my website, weaveyourbliss.com. You'll see it right at the top in the red bar. So get a hold of it. It's $33 and 100% of profits go to an Indigenous-led environmental organization. So I hope that's a huge help for you. Also, there's a link where you can drop it directly into your Google Calendar, meaning it's all there for you. You don't have to do anything and you can plan around those dates. So I hope that's helpful to you. So I ask everybody this on the podcast because this is largely about living in your purpose. You know, that's the topic kind of the core topic. So what does that mean to you that to live in your purpose? What does that look like to you? For me on a, on a personal level, that looks like uh, creation. My friend, Helen, who's, she's been an artist her entire life and she's, I think, 80 years old this year. She talks about what she calls a biological imperative, which for her is also, you know, her paintings and her drawings. And now she's in this interesting period of like setting that down, you know, as she prepares for her next journey, arguably the the bigger journey even than life. Biological imperative is creation, making stories, making artworks. That is what I would say is like personal purpose. But then, of course, that purpose also interacts with everyone else's purposes around me. And so we have this uh, societal purpose as well, which... I know you and I are familiar with is like is beautifully encapsulated in this concept of dharma that is a personal ethics and a personal purpose what one has to do in this lifetime but it's also family wide and society wide and interacts on all of those levels and of course then things become intensely complex but like answering the call you know like that call that you had when you're 15 to just create and be like responsive to that yes yes you have to be responsive to that because that's what the world is asking for. I, with me, I know, and I think everyone has that. 
you know, the world is asking for something from you, from me, from everyone else. And if you don't respond to that, then what is this life for, if mm. not to? Yeah. It could be very different things for very different people. Yeah. It's super interesting because like the world is asking for when you said that I was thinking, you know, something else that we share is that we actually give a shit about what's happening on this earth and like what the future of humanity is. And like, despite all of humanity's flaws, like we hope for the best. And I, I'm assuming you agree with me because we've talked about this, but like we need creative solutions. And on some level, art can seem not helpful or something like people get caught in that. But I actually think art is actually a powerful way. And this is what a friend of mine said, you know, he's an indigenous futurist, and he writes fantasy, and like does all these beautiful things. And he was on the podcast Teo Montoya for people who are listening. But like he said, this helps us envision a different way. Like if we create these pathways, it's actually prophecy. That's what he said, like we are writing prophecy. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on any of that. It goes back to what we were talking about, about story and mythology and how stories uh, create or are generators of culture, like that fire that everyone's sitting around. That's a culture generator because stories are told around it. And then we live out those stories in our lives and they shape how we see the world and how we interact with it. So, you know, this is not to say like, oh, the storytellers are actually the most important. <laughs> we're all storytellers. Every, every, so. Everyone has a role to play and we're all storytellers and we're all also in stories that are being told by the world around us. But I think that the seeds that that will carry into the future are seeds of story and we're, we're caught in big stories and small stories all the time. So that perhaps the role of a storyteller or a creator is to generate these narratives and possibilities that are different from what are the way our culture is behaving right now. Often we have a grandiose idea of what kind of impact we can have as one person. Like, sure, we can have a big impact. But like, any, if I've learned anything on the spiritual path, that's like every little action, can it adds up. It's like the butterfly wings, right? <laughs> so, so just taking what is possible for you and creating within that frame may have a big impact. But not to expect that necessarily, you know? I think we've, you and I have discussed this as well, but I feel that that is a really important thing to know that you yourself or me, myself, I'm not going to do the thing that's going to change the course of the ship or save the world or whatever it may be. And at least it's my perception, especially with folks of my generation, but with a lot of people as well, is that um, we are so constantly exposed to all of the things that seem to be going wrong in the world. And because in a certain way, because each of us is like a, a nodal point where all of that information can be concentrated, the feeling can arise that, oh, I'm the nodal point that I have to fix all of this stuff. And it's very anxiety generating. And also, um, it's also a, a form of uh, egoism to think, oh, I can, I can solve these things, not to say, oh, throw up your hands and say that there's there's no there's no, nothing to be done, but to at least for me, I think I, I always feel I have to move forward with the idea that I'm not going to fix any of these, and yet still I have to try, and to hold those two things at the same time is I think that's a, being in that paradox is a powerful place to be. Love it. 
so much juice in this conversation. Tell us where the listeners can get a copy of the book and where they can find you on social media. And then we'll do some rapid fire questions. The first edition of the book sold out in two days, which was a big surprise. And it was a small edition, but still I was gratified and shocked by that. So right now I have someone who's helping me fund the second printing and we're going to be doing a second edition in the fall. And if you want to have a look at the book and pre-order a copy of the second edition, that's on uh, satyamoses.com slash pre-order. And we'll have that in the show notes so you can okay, go and click yeah. on it. <laughs> Great. Uh, that's the spot to go to check out the book. And then as far as social media, I think I do the most with Instagram because it is a visual medium. So that's at satya.mo, short for Moses. Awesome. So let's jump into the rapid fire. Okay. What is one piece of advice that has really helped you in your life? A lot of people have given me some good advice. I can tell you one piece of advice that is sitting with me very powerfully right now. And it's come to me only recently, but it, it, it feels reflective of so much in my life, which is the sacred question of what comes before inspiration. That is a powerful one to be in. Ponderous. Yes. Ponder. <laughs> I will think on that. So when you feel anxious, confused, or frustrated, what's the first thing you do to ground yourself? On the physical level, breath is very important. My father teaches pranayama, so I've, I've had exposure to that. And I, I know the importance of breathing deeply and calmly. And on the mental level, gratitude to God. That's what it has to be. I think that... So many things that seem concerning in the moment can, for me, uh, easily be put in perspective when I simply go to that place of prayer and um, reestablish that connection, which is a funny one because the connection is always there whether or not you establish it. But it's, it's, again, one of these paradoxes where, you know, yes, we're all always 100% divine and 100% connected, but <laughs> you have to work to get there. To remember. Yes, to remember. What is your favorite hot beverage? Well, I'm having some uh, black tea with honey and cream right now. If I can get it, I really like a nice cup of puer. Oh, nice. That's, a, that's an excellent. Good to know. Yeah, you should yes. uh, contact our friend Johnny. <laughs> I know. I have to, I, I'm all out. Well, come over and visit us and we've got lots of puer. <laughs> oh, great. Enough of this PG tips. <laughs> so what would be your last meal on earth? These are these are tough questions. These There's are, two schools of thought on this one. Fire. This one's like either you go full on into like the thing that you normally wouldn't eat because yeah. you know you'll you'll enjoy it, <laughs> or it's like right. the sattvic meal that will set you up, you know, for your next <laughs> good, lifetime. Good for the next life. <laughs> yeah. I was sort of honestly, I mean, Zen mind, beginner's mind, the first thing that popped into my head when you said that was a bowl of yogurt. Oh. But that could also be because that's what I ate this morning for breakfast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think that my friend Bob, who lives over here in Vermont and teaches uh, outdoor education to kids, is a big fan of chocolate. And when you ask him what his favorite kind of chocolate is, he always says, my favorite chocolate is the chocolate I'm eating right now. So I think that my last meal would be whatever meal I'm eating in that moment. And I would endeavor to enjoy it with the knowledge that it's the last. Definitely. I think it changes on the day for me. So I accept mm -hmm. that answer. <laughs> Great. Um, so do you have a morning routine and what part, if any, is non-negotiable? My morning routine is always involves sitting, offering some incense to my deities, chanting some mantras, meditation, drinking some hot water, 
usually followed by coffee and then yoga later on. Mm -hmm. Um, The really non-negotiable part is like the, the, the most key piece of that is the meditation. If need be, it could be five minutes. It's not ideal, but the moment of closing the eyes and getting to the baseline of the breath uh, underneath the kind of activity of the mind, that is the really non-negotiable piece. I think everything else is great, but if I have to boil it down to, to one segment, that it's that. So tell us about a person who inspires you and why. In this moment, my mind is actually going to my father, Robert Moses. I find him inspiring because throughout my growing up, I've witnessed him go through uh, many changes and simultaneously that uh, baseline, which again, like, like I just talked about, going back to meditation practice, that baseline of returning to worship, returning to meditation, returning to breath has always been there. That uh, certainly inspires me. A couple other folks who uh, are inspirational to me. One is the writer Paul Kingsnorth, who's quite a character. I met him. I was actually taking a weekend writing course with him uh, in Ireland when I had that hedge woman experience. And he is a very interesting writer. I think that he wrote a book called Confessions of a Recovering Environmentalist, which is a, a great, at least for me, was an excellent anxiety antidote. And I highly recommend that. And now he's on this whole spiritual journey of converting to Eastern Orthodox Christianity, which I've been reading some of his stuff on, which is interesting. He's, he's a very engaging thinker who I agree on many things with, although not everything. So I recommend his works. Many inspirational people. There's inspirational people walking down the street outside right now mm-hmm. who I have not yet encountered. So something that people may not know about you. Well, I love bicycles. I think a bicycle is... There are some inventions of the human species that I see as just a pure, unadulterated good. Mm-hmm. Um, like most musical instruments, I think, oh, cool. fall into that category. And I would say that the bicycle is also in that category. And that's another... Aside from uh, thanking God for everything and breathing, one of the best antidotes to a funk that I know about is getting on a bicycle and riding it around a little bit. It's a beautiful thing to do. So you mentioned um, Paul Kingsnorth. Is that what yes. But are, you, are there any other books you would recommend or um, what are you reading right now? Oh, there are so many good books. Right now, I picked up this book that actually Robert Svoboda handed down to me, which is called A Story Like the Wind by Lawrence Vander Post about the Bushmen, but I've only just begun and read the first chapter. Um, but so far that is, it's uh, looking like it will be very good. I think that as far as books that I would sort of recommend or point people toward, uh, there are so many. I think that some of my kind of inspirations in, in my book would be like the works of Paul Kingsnorth and the works of um, people like Martin Shaw, and uh, Martin Prechtel, and these these writers who really are interested in storytelling and how it shapes culture. And another one who I, I have not read very much of, but I absolutely intend to, especially based on a conversation I just had with another one of my childhood mentors, is um, Terry Tempest Williams, who I'm, I'm sort of pre-recommending just based on the little bit I've read and what everyone else has told me. Mm. But she's a writer who I've intend to engage with very soon. Cool. So the last question is, what is bringing you joy right now in your life? So many things. I feel so fortunate right now. 
I mean, this cup of tea, the fact that I have this gallery show, which is going really well, and the book launch, which went really well, and that I get to live in this peaceful, green Vermont corner of the country where things are pretty quiet and not anxiety-inducing. And it's summer in New England, right? And it's summer in New England. It's not excessively hot. We're having thunderstorms. We can swim in the rivers. There's not too many mosquitoes. I haven't gotten too many tick bites this year. So much to be thankful for. All of the things and more are giving me joy. I feel joyful, as in full of joy. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. We hope it was inspiring for you. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment for us. I want to thank the team at Team Podcast who helped get this podcast out to you. And also to thank the musicians who were the creators of this beautiful music we're listening to now. It comes from an album, Fragments of a Season, by Alexis Georgopoulos and Jeffrey Cantuladesma. So check it out wherever you get your music. Have a wonderful day, and we will connect soon on a future episode. 